I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com/suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. Dzogchen tradition actually has three practices. Of course, there are many and sub-practices and other things, and I'm not talking about Vajrayana now, the Dzogchen tradition itself, Dzogchen, Dzogchen, not Vajrayana, Dzogchen, or Mahayana, Dzogchen, 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 Dzogchen really has three practices. The first, or the preliminary, or the Nundro, is called Rushen, or subtle discernment. Rushen, subtle discernment, literally separating the wheat from the chaff, discerning between fabricated and natural or organic, discerning between samsara and nirvana or freedom and bondage, discerning between small self and transpersonal being or self with a capital S, discerning between mind and rigpa or sem and rigpa in Tibetan, mind with a small m and mind with a capital M in Zen parlance. Subtle discernments. And there are various practices for that outer body, Rushen of the six realms and inner energy and mantra and other kinds of Rushen and then 
secret or in subtlest mind rule shed and so forth. But the main practice is trekjud, cutting through, seeing through, being through, naked awareness practice. Openness and awareness inseparable. And then this leads to the kind of mystical practice or advanced practice or the so-called super secret, top secret, for your eyes only, and I mean that for your eyes only, practice of togel or being there, the visionary practice of, of Dzogchen. It's a combination of FYI, for your eyes only, and BYO, bring your own. Because what you see is what you get and what you got. So, Tregchud, seeing through, being through Tregchud, cutting through, cutting through duality or separateness, the illusion of separateness, seeing through the veil of separateness, seeing through the obscurations, wearing the kalashas lightly, recognizing even the five kalashas as the five wisdoms, as it says in the Dzogchen text. Recognizing the five kalashas or obscuring emotions, the five poisons, greed, hatred, delusion, pride, and jealousy. Recognizing the five kalashas, the five poisons, as the five wisdoms, as it says in the Dzogchen text. That even the kalashas or, or anger or hatred or ignorance have their own wisdom side or their own intelligence or bring us intelligence from the field. For example, Anger or aggression may tell us what's wrong or something's wrong. Aversion helps us see what's wrong and so forth. Emotional wisdom, as a modern psychologist might call it. So, Dzogchen Trekchud is sort of a non-dual awareness practice. It's the culmination of the general Buddhist practices familiar in this country in words like shamatha and vipassana in words like shine and laktang, if you're a student of Buddhism, if you go to other traditions, teachers and books. In the Tibetan tradition, shine, concentration, meditation, or shamatha in Sanskrit, concentration, one-pointed, tranquility, meditation, whatever you want to call it, leading to vipassana or insight or laktang in Tibetan, higher seeing, deeper vision, laktang leading to the union of shamatha and vipassana and mahamudra and dzogchen. So this is kind of a combination of and beyond. That's why it's called the highest teaching or the consummate teaching of Tibetan Buddhism, the penthouse of the Vajrayana and so forth, being there, not trying to get there. In general sutra teachings, general Buddhism, it says it takes many lifetimes to get enlightened even after having a dip in the river of nirvana and becoming a stream mentor, sotapanna, still seven lifetimes to enlightenment, to liberation, to arhathood. In the Mahayana scriptures, 10 or 11 bhumis leading to Buddhahood over many lifetimes of schlepping, schlepping to enlightenment. But in Dzogchen, as my teacher called in the poem, one bhumi Zogpachempo, only one level, one step. And we talked about that last night, the backward step that brings you to where you are instead of being ahead of yourself all the time. From, not from here to there, as in the general gradual path of developmental Buddhism or developmental spirituality from here to there, but from here to truly and utterly, totally here. 
so it's called Enlightenment in this lifetime, or in the Dzogchen tradition, if you read the bottle, if you read the label at the fine print, at the bottom it even says, in th or in three years. But then there's some super fine printing, you really have to like use a magnifying glass to that, where it says, if practiced assiduously. Not just three years of dozing on your cushion. If practiced assiduously. So, in other words, enlightenment now, not waiting. With that outlook, we can see the three trainings of Buddhism, ethics, meditation, and wisdom and love trainings, which are the Eightfold Path as a path of enlightened living, not just a path to enlightenment, as if later. A path of enlightened living. Enlightened living now. Being congruent with reality now. Being inseparable from reality and everything now. So it's a beautiful joyous path, as my teacher, Nyoshu Kempo, used to say, Nur day zok pachempo, swift and cozy or easy, zok great perfection. Not a path of austerities. Not necessarily requiring monasticism, fasting, austerities, lengthy retreats, ritual, philosophy, etc. Nur day, nurwa, swift dewa, blissful or delightful, cozy, Zogpachempo, great perfection. So it's a joyous path and we love it. That's why I always say Zogchen is, but not comparatively, Zogchen is more fun. Buddhism is always explained from the bottom up. Shila, ethics, character, self-discipline, morality, Shila, leading to samadhi, concentration, meditation, contemplation, mindfulness, and so on leading to wisdom and love, the wisdom of selflessness, etc. Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna, or Panya, the three higher trainings, the few, three liberating trainings, as Buddha called it. If you break these out, they are the Eightfold Path. How do you practice these three trainings? The Eightfold Path. And my whole book, Awakening the Buddha Within, Eight Steps to Enlightenment, is about that. You can read that. 20 or 30 pages on each of the eight steps. It's all there. But Dzogchen is called swooping down from above, not climbing up from below from ethics and purification and then to meditation and then to wisdom, but swooping down from above with the view of things as they are. So not just gradual enlightenment, but sort of complementary or simultaneously. And this is just finger painting, rough words, sudden enlightenment or uh, pre-enlightenment, as a brilliant translator called it. Enlightened uh, Buddha before enlightenment, pre-enlightened Buddha. Buddha nature, perfect before you get enlightened, etc. So from the view of things as they are, as they always have been and will be, as it is, comes the meditation of non-meditation, getting used to it. Getting used to what? How it is. Not prettying it up and not visualizing, not purifying, not transforming, but just recognizing, seeing through illusory, impermanent, ownerless phenomena and noumena or mind stuff. Seeing through all permanent, impermanent, dreamlike, illusory phenomena and noumena. Non-meditation, just getting used to it, how things are, reality, which leads to three, action or conduct, the bodhisattva activity, 
spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity, not just conditioned, reactive, karmic activity, but spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity, not just conditioned, habitual, karmic activity, but spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity. View, meditation, action. So these are not contradictory. The saying is swooping down from above with the view while climbing up the path or the spiritual mountain from below through relative practices according to one capacity, one's capacity and aspirations, inclinations. Swooping while climbing. As we do here, we call it non-meditation, we call it natural meditation, but it looks like a meditation retreat to me. It's silent, we have meditation periods, we sit here cross-legged, our knees hurt, it must be meditation. I mean, my knees don't hurt in the movies. It's not the movies. So, and, you know, practicing ethics and, and vegetarian and nonviolent everything we do here, you know, in this, like, uh, floating Buddhist monastery. So, of course, we're practicing Sheila Samadhi and Prajna and the Eightfold Path of wise view and wise intentions and all the rest, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, and all the rest, wise effort, wise concentration, and uh, wise mindfulness, of course. But the view enhances all the rel each relative practice, greatly, exponentially enhances the relative practices. So even if you light a candle, it's qu quite a different karmic result if you have the view than if you're just doing a ritual you kind of childish think, you know, you're lighting a candle so the Buddha will see better or see warm or stay warm or something. You know, this kind of superstition or, or weak understanding of, of a ritual. Or bowing. Bowing to, you know, somebody who has something that you don't is a very childish understanding of the bowing in Buddhism. But you could be bowing as, you know, when, with nothing to bow to and no one bowing. That would be true reverence in Buddhism. That would be the view, with the bowing with the view. So from that point of view, everything could be practice and an expression of enlightened living. So this is kind of the general scheme or outlook of Dzogchen and his sister practice Mahamudra. Dzogchen, in the context of the sutras of Buddhism, and the tantras of Dzogchen and Mahamudra, the non-dual teachings of Buddhism. Sutra and tantra, as we call it in Tibet. Any questions, please, especially about our practice here? Somebody's hand was up over here before, Anora. Do you still have that question, or did it answer itself? Well, it's percolating. Maybe a couple of days, or a couple of okay. months, or years. We'll see. So, in the Vajrayana scriptures, it talks about the requirement to um, like the, what's the right verb to accumulate the pa the two accumulations. It talks about the need to accumulate vast stores of merit in order to understand the view or get the right ahas, etc. Talks about a lot of other stuff too, but now let's just stay with merit. That. Okay. So it doesn't just talk so about vast accumulations of merit. Also vast accumulations of wisdom. wisdom. 
so, you know, maybe we did some of that in order to get ourselves here in the first place. Maybe. That's right. Good thinking. You know, on the other hand, it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> or maybe it is. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> so You're very confused. I'll tell you how exactly we... how it is. It ain't over till the fat llama sings. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's when it's over. I'll keep that in mind. So, so you know, so the... But then there's the idea that just one second in the view is like the perfect torma offering. You know, it's already yes. this incredible uh, cre creation of or accumulation of merit to even have ever had one second really in the view. So could you comment on accumulation of merit vis-a-vis -vis the slide that Christopher has up on the board, please? Right. So the Thank first you. one is like the accumulation of merit, and the second one's the accumulation of wisdom, which is not accumulated. That's why it's prajna, wisdom, not understanding, information, or knowledge. Like the two sides of the brain, there's the rational side, step-by-step, -step, linear, rag linear path, and then there's the intuitive grokking at all one's holistic side of the brain, the right side of this chart. Just It's not a bad comparison, I think. Just to account for the yin and yang of things, you know? The, comp the masculine and feminine well, energy. I mean, the yin and yang of the duality of things, <laughs> heaven and earth. So, so, let me tell you a story. Okay. Thank you. I know you're holding the mic, but you asked. So, in the Zen tradition, which has great stories, I mean, we have great stories in the Tibetan tradition, in all the traditions, teaching tales, but in the Zen tradition, they have nice short stories that are easy to remember, and they don't take a whole Prajnaparamita Sutra this long. So, that, that's one of their modern virtues. It could almost fit in a Twitter. Not in a tweet, not quite. As a haiku, maybe. So, I'm sure you all remember from your history that Bodhidharma went to see the Emperor of China. And uh, Bodhidharma, the patriarch of Zen, who brought the, the great Zen master who came from India and brought Zen Buddhism to China in, um, I can't remember, 5th century AD, maybe, doesn't matter. And he was summoned or he went, I don't know. He, he went to see the emperor of China. You know, in those days there weren't that many people, so you could just go and see the emperor, not like today with all the security and all. And you just go and see the emperor of China, and um, he was a master, so he had no problem with that. And they had a little chit-chat, not that much, but the emperor was a, a wise Confucian scholar, philosopher, of course, like the Dalai Lama is, you know, one of the most highly educated people in his country and probably the world. And the emperor told Bodhidharma kind of proudly, you know, being an emperor and having a very big kingdom, how many uh, temples, there was Buddhism in India, in China already, not Zen Buddhism, Buddhism from India, Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism. There was Buddhism, 
Tibetan Buddhism. And the empress told him, Bodhidharma, how many temples he built and how many monks and nuns he supported and fed and how many, you know, I could go on and on, you know, because that's how it goes with um, State of the Union addre type addresses, you know, all the th virtuous and great things that I, the emperor, had done for my people and for Buddhism and for the world. And then the emperor said to Bodhidharma, so isn't that great? So how, how much merit is that? Isn't that fantastic? And Bodhidharma, the master, said, in vast emptiness, nothing holy, no merit. So Bodhidharma got his ass kicked out of there and spent nine years in a, in a, in a cave meditating until his first disciple came along, waited kneeling in the snow and became his disciple and the second patriarch of Zen in China. The emperor missed his chance because he was talking about merit in a very materialistic, proud, braggadocio way. Now, I'm not saying he shouldn't have said that, but the, what's the moral of the story? The balance of absolute truth, shunyata, things are not what they say seem to be, emptiness isn't a bad translation, and the relative truth of good works, good karma, accumulating merits, good fortune, and so on. What goes around comes around, you reap what you sow. In emptiness, you don't reap what you sow, and nothing is sown. It's all happening already, so balance. So in vast emptiness, nothing holy. That's the quote, meaning no merits. But in the karmic world, it's all about karma and interdependent origination. There's no one up there, you know, pulling the strings like God or it's not prescripted. I mean, this is the thinking. So it's up to us what we plant and we reap what we sow. So that's how you accumulate merit. So we shouldn't be too materialistic about it. But there's this notion of you reap what you sow. This is not just an Eastern notion. It's in the Bible. It's Western thinking, you know, biblical thinking, whatever, right, about virtue and vice and so on. And we can see it in practical ways in farming that's why we have the words reap and sow, which everybody can relate to. But we also see it in our own lives in terms of health, mental health, the family, the society, right? Now, you can't explain everything that way because the mystery, you know, life is mysterious. Why did some child get born with a dreaded disease? You can't really blame them. They didn't have time to do anything yet. Ah, but then it might be the past lives. Who knows? Anyway, it's their parents' karma, too. Maybe their parent was a crack addict, so the child gets born with crack addiction. You see, that's karma. It's not the child's fault exactly, but there's karma at work. It's not an accident. Children not born with crack addiction if their parents are not crack addicts, I think. So that's causation. So that's the realm of merits. So we have to keep that in mind and balance those. So they say that to be fully enlightened... This is Mahayana Buddhist thinking, not Zen thinking, not Theravadan thinking exactly. We have to fulfill the accumulations, or we have to accumulate a lot of wisdom and good karma. Wisdom like about the absolute, infinite mystery, subjectivity, emptiness, if you insist, prajna, shunyata, and the relative virtue and vice and what's helpful and what's harmful and having what's needed. Having what's needed. So that's why they say you have to accumulate enough good karma to have what's needed. 
like not just to be a healer, but to like have the means and the opportunity to heal people. Not just to be wise, but to know how to express it, how to teach, how to inspire, how to lead, how to empower, you see? Those are like qualities that get developed, not just realized all at once. So wisdom may be like a lightning bolt that illumines the whole universe at once, but merits is like uh, knowing how to, you know, invent cars and then planes and then rocket ships and then spaceships to investigate or to cross the universe. And then there are many stories in the Tibetan canon about this, like Tertans who were born so poor that although they had infinite visions and revelations, they didn't have pen and ink and paper to write it down. There are stories about them because of their past lives. Of course, there's some stupid, you know, it's like they lost their their Turton writing license because in the past life, they, I don't know, they ran over their guru's shadow with their slipper or something. You see? So they lost their, their poetic license in that life. They couldn't write it down. But they had the visions and revelations and spoken, but there was no one to write it down either. Unlike Dujum Rinpoche, you know, of the past, who was illiterate, but had seven scribes writing it down. I mean, Dujum Lingpa, seven scribes writing it down, his 13 termas and voluminous revelations. From accumulation, you know, merits, good karma. People had faith in him. They served him. They were devoted. They were around. They wrote it down. They copied and memorized it. They published it and printed it. They kept it until now. Now they translate it and, and still teach it because of his accumulated merits combined with his wisdom. So I hope that's helpful. So, of course, in today's secular postmodern age, a lot of people will say, who, you know, what is this about merits? It seems very materialistic. What is this? The Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, like selling indulgences? I don't think that's really the point. Buddhism is about karma. In a way, you can buy your way into heaven because that's what heaven's about. Heaven's the penthouse. It's more expensive than the basement. But you can't buy your way into the space. You see, that's the wisdom side. But on the relative side, you can buy your way there with good deeds and generosity and unselfishness and so on. You can get higher, but maybe you can't get freer. Wisdom is about freedom, and, de and merits is about like a better rebirth to talk Buddhism opportunity, yeah. Right. So... Then I know, uh, I can see your husband in your aura there saying, but don't we need a lot of merits to have Dzogchen teachings and all blah, blah, blah. So that, but you already answered in the beginning. Maybe you already have those since we're having Dzogchen teachings and we're even like getting them. I don't mean receiving them. I mean like we're getting it. We're grokking it. You know, there's like a teenager sitting behind you who keeps coming. She must have a lot of merits or, or she's on her parents' credit card. It's not by accident, right? There are other teenagers that somehow aren't here. I don't know why, but you know, the, the other nine billion aren't here for some reason, <laughs> karmically speaking. So she must be getting something out of it, otherwise she wouldn't come back. So I guess it is doable. She has enough merits to get something out of it. It's hard to argue with that. Questions? Yes. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. So uh, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So if we're thinking of all these different 
concepts as interdependent and relative. And we're talking about big self, small self, and emptiness, which is everythingness. Then is karma, big karma and small karma in the same way, relative karma and no. collective karma? No, karma is, oh, collect is all relative, but there's individual karma, collective karma, you know, species karma, you know what I'm saying? But there's not absolute karma and relative karma. Karma means cause and effect, causation, conditioning. There's only re that's relative. That has needs sequence. You know, one pool ball, one billiard ball doesn't hit. An, you know, has if it doesn't have anything to ricochet off, there's no game. See, one there's no karma in emptiness or oneness or whatever you want to call it. The higher power, God, the one, the Tao has no karma, or is beyond karma, or, or is karma, however you want to look at it. We, individual, separate beings, you know, have karma, make karma. In Tibetan, the word karma is lay. So although we always translate the word karma as causation, cause and effect, conditioning, in Tibetan, lay means action. Karma means action. I think the better uh, translation would be reaction. Karma means reaction. Like I said, if there's only one billiard ball, there's no, nothing to ricochet off. You, you see what I'm saying? There's no reaction. There's no billiard game. Yeah. It's just a ball. It's not really a billiard ball. As soon as there's another ball, then there's, you know, all that English and direction and ricochet, and that's karma. It takes two to tango. It takes two to tangle karmically speaking. It takes a duality to tangle, karmically speaking. Like you and your wife. It's very hard to have a fight with yourself, although knowing you, you do. But fight usually implies other, self and other somehow. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I think relating to, and there's a question here today about self and not self, and you referred to it, and he asked about a not to and no self, and this and that. On this subject, think about this. Everybody probably has seen the movie Titanic, some of us more than 10 times, no doubt. <laughs> we all know about the Titanic. So in, in the movie, is the, is the iceberg really the culprit? See, the iceberg was just sitting there minding its own business. It's, the, it's hard to say the iceberg is the culprit, or the iceberg sank the, sh the great unsinkable ship and drowned the poor, the poor uh, people, you know, the poor people, you know whose names there are. Um, it's hard to say that. And moreover, now let's get a little deeper into it. If there's only the sea, there's no concept of drowning. There's no concept of shipwreck if there's no ships, no matter how bad the storm is. You with me? There's no concept of shipwreck if there's no ships. There's no concept of drowning if there's no beings, no separate beings, no egos. There may be canoes, there may be rowboats and jet skis, there may be titanics, but there's no drowning. There's, you know, so similarly, with the notion of ego and beyond ego and freedom and freedom from death and deathlessness, as Buddha said, Buddha said all conditioned phenomena are impermanent, but um, he didn't really leave it at that. He also talked about deathless nirvana, so there may be something else that's not conditioned, that is unborn and undying. 
like Buddha nature is a kind of a placeholder for that something. So, or the clear light, as the Dalai Lama likes to call it. So if there's no ego, there's no death. So what is it that dies? You could say it's the separate self with ego. So that's why we talk about transpersonal being and beyond. Even while we're alive, we could have ego death and still be alive and even extra moral, genuinely alive. So the waves don't drown, the bubbles, the icebergs, etc. Don't, don't drown in the ocean. It's the separate, you know, I don't know, people, let's say. I keep saying beings because I'm thinking Buddhism. The people are subject to drowning, not the things that are one and inseparable from the whole. So no one's saying it's sinful to have an ego or the ego is the devil. We're just saying that separation by its nature is, um, has, a, has, a, has a short you know, lifespan and is subject to death. So I hope we're communicating. This is a deep subject. And anatta or no separate self is probably the toughest nut to crack in Buddhist thinking. Questions? Anybody we haven't heard from? Yes. Leslie. That was such a, um, an excellent question. What is the problem? Can, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Um, you spoke about this morning. What is the problem? And I asked you first, what is the problem? <laughs> well, I was looking at that. I mean, I've been, that's been resounding through me. And um, Is there a problem? Well, it's like the ship in the icebergs. I mean, there, part of this is extremely natural. It's, it's, you know, the mind secreting thoughts, like the nose secretes, you know, boogers or whatever. <laughs> I was thinking secretes an interesting word, but it just got more interesting. <laughs> yeah. You're talking, it's just like a sutra flowing out of your ma out of your nose. <laughs> the Booger Sutra, I love it. Dave Barry would approve. <laughs> but, but, you know, it is that. I mean, the, as, as yucky as they may be, they are a very natural process. Yes, and, as and is death, of, as is death. So all of this, um, all of this thinking and problems and separation and shipwrecks and merits and all of this um, all these thoughts, accumulation the concepts, even yeah. the, the concept of accumulation right. so as Nora was speaking it occurred to me that um, I mean I just felt it that merit can be so tiny I mean it can be just simply a part of the way we approach every moment with this open heart and this, um, I mean, we were talking about very big things to accumulate in merit, but there's the, there's the everyday. Yeah, of course. Opening that for maybe many of us who are here has contributed to allowing us to be here in this setting. Maybe. You know, we didn't feed yeah. thousands, but we let someone have a parking spot. Maybe you fed your children thousands of times. Even when they were teenagers and were not grateful, you still did it. So that's called Poor merit. Kids. That's, <laughs> yeah. 
So, so but, but it's not about size. It's yeah. That's again why and the, that's again the emperor would all the bigger, you know, whatever. It was still in vast emptiness. What can be called holy? What nothing holy? Yes. No merits. And 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 in vast emptiness, no big and small, and no emperor and and serf either. And what was interesting, I it, the rest of that story is the emperor realized his mistake and sent for Bodhidharma, and Bodhidharma refused to go back to him. So he missed the teaching twice. I forgot that part. And then what happens after that? Then he goes to the cave. Um, sorry. Was, I, was that... That was good. Obnoxious? No, shut up. Okay. <laughs> no. A booger. <laughs> no, but it was um, just one more booger out of your nose. <laughs> secreted. <laughs> Maybe so, that's the real inner meaning of the secret teachings. They're secreted out of the nose. And everybody, and nobody, you know, recognizes their clear luminosity because they think they're boogers. You know. Thus, you being a Zen student, you would remember from the Zen literature how many times monks, somehow it's always monks, I think they had no nuns in those days, um, or nobody cared about them. Um, the monk comes to the master and says, what is Buddha? And Buddha says, you know, boogers. Or Buddha says, toilet paper. Right? Yes. Or Buddha says, you know, a pound of hot dogs. Because he's His weighing the hot dogs. Yeah. You know, this is Buddha. This is it. That's the message, not hot dogs. Could have been hamburgers. Could have been a pound of flax, even. Whatever. That's what he actually said. So that's very important. That's why we don't recognize that boogers are also a natural secretion. But who cares about boogers? How about thoughts? Again, are we thought swatters trying to get rid of them, you know, as we're meditating? calm and clear the mind, as so many people will tell you when they give meditation instruction. That's just rearranging the furniture in your prison cell. That's like fighting for a better birth on the Titanic. So, so, so boogers are also necessary, just like shit. Where would we be without shit? Or, or assholes. Where would we be without assholes? We'd be stuck. Really? So it's all it. But then, of course, in, in general, you know, there's what you like want to eat and shouldn't eat and what you want to give to your children and don't want to give, happen to your children and so on. And the relative, let's face it, kick or kiss. Don't tell me it's all one and it's all the same. You'd be locked up. They'd take your children away. And they should, if you're that insane. So that's not oneness. That's just like uh, white out or fog out. So wisdom is a higher form of sanity, not just some kind of insanity, although it may have its, you know, iconoclastic, eccentric-looking sides, but it's a higher form of sanity, like good judgment and discernment and objectivity. You know, objectivity might sound boring or, or dry, you know, detachment, but do you want a detached judge or a subject, very subjective judge? Of course, you want a detached, objective judge. So to make your own judgments, you know, about what's helpful and harmful, that, or good or bad, then, you know, objectivity and detachment is very important. It's very, you know, it's um, as good as warm love and caring 
It's, it's the way to care about something in that moment of decision-making. So that, that question, what is the problem, is kind of a truck-shot uh, yeah. practice that cuts through That's right. this. It does. And things So if that cuts through for you, away. you should use that. That's good. That's your, I did. your, your machete, I, your nuclear machete. So thank you for that. I'm glad that came up. So I kind of have this understanding that like all is illusory. At least that's, I think, what you're trying to say. And is our realization of this illusory world also an illusion? Um, yes and no. Yes, from the point of view of this world, but no from above, you know, from the reality, no. So then, then we can trust it because... Because it's self-authenticating. If you're very honest and know how or learn how not to deceive yourself, again, I just talked about it being objective, seeing things clearly, then you, it's self-authentic. Like, this is kind of a caricature or like now I'm blowing up something into the biggest example where one's own life is not that clear, usually black and white. But like Buddha, when he was enlightened, he said, I am the enlightened one. You know, he probably didn't say I, but that's what they say, you know, like it says when he arose from his seat, he, he, he proclaimed enlightenment or something. So most people don't say, oh, Buddha, what an egotist. Because he kind of, uh, uh, what, what, what's the word? He, um, he lived up to it, you know? He occupied that space. There are people in insane asylums that run around saying they're Jesus, but they're not acting like Jesus, you know? And they're not raising the dead and healing the sick. They're kind of insane and need help. So people think they're crazy. That's different. But not everybody believed Buddha. The first people that came to him didn't listen, if you look at the history. So anyway, um, we usually say, and you're a young guy, so I really want to be like clear and attentive and not goof around with you. I mean, in my usual double-edged way, pulling up the flag and pulling it down at the same time. In your case, I just want to back you and like up, for now, um, trust your heart and try to sh refine your intuition, not just thought. Yes, thinking clearly and learning better, good, but um, tr so you can trust your intuition to follow your heart. As my own guru wrote, Dujum Rinpoche, in his, one of his long poems, this is such a Tibetan image, I love it. Bear with me. Tie around your own head the rope that leads from the tip of your nose, meaning, you dumb oxen. <laughs> but that's not what he said. He said, tie around your own head the rope, how about the word leash, that leads from the tip of your, your, your nose. So you see what I'm saying? So don't be a blind follower. Find out for yourself. Refine your intuition as well as your thought processes and get clear, and then you will know. 
and you will know. And you can trust that. Of course we make mistakes and don't be afraid to make mistakes. But self-reliance is very important and being an independent thinker and so on, as well as asking for help, learning from others, blah, blah, etc. So, So when you use a word like realization, that's a very high kind of special word. Theoretically, that's not illusion. That's like um, realization of reality, you know, theoretically. But at another level, you could say everything that you can say in words is illusory-like. So there are prayers that like that that say, "May I, may I, may I practice the illusory practice to liberate the illusory beings from illusory samsara and realize illusory." Enlightenment. It doesn't mean that enlightenment is totally an illusion. It's like the best illusion or it's the last illusion that should go. How about that? It's the last illusion that should go. So it's okay to, re like, within this illusion, like, kind of almost point it towards certain things? Yes. Purposefully right. be illused? Uh, yes. Because if you're purposefully illused, then you're like the magician who knows he's making magic rather than the victim of the illusion. So you can create a beautiful thing, but you don't necessarily uh, fall in love with it and it breaks your heart when it doesn't, uh, I don't know, love you back right. You with me? So that, but, and moreover, Buddhism doesn't say everything is an illusion. It, as I was saying last night, like a dream, like a fantasy, like a sitcom, see things like a mirage, like a movie, not overly invested in it, but still uh, dancing to the music. I don't know if that's the right, you know, not following in lockstep, but, you know, in harmony with the music as it is. Something like that. And yes, definitely intending and choosing. And uh, In fact, if I was going to be totally uh, self-revealing, my own lama told me some years ago, because I was saying, I was giving him some kind of um, high uh, bullcrap. He speaks English. I was saying something like about making your karma into your dharma. And that sounds good in English, doesn't it? It rhymes and all. He said, Surya, you could be a little more directive with your channel, your energy. <laughs> he was kind of saying, don't be so fucking lazy. Well, laissez-faire. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe he meant, don't let your disciples just run around like that. I don't know. <laughs> be more directive. They need more structure. I don't know. These are just my illusory interpretations. What's your name, young Buddha? It's uh, Dylan. Dylan, may I pry and ask how old you are? Uh, 18 years that's, old. That's beautiful. Long life in the Dharma and to you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the amazon.com link for all of your purchases namaste
Come.